0: My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Mordecai. Mordecai is a global innovation leader, ad woman, and activist. She's a regular speaker and contributor to publications like The Drum and Campaign, just to name a few. Really excited to have her join me on The Deep Dive today. So welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Hey, I'm very well. How are you doing today?
0: I have not a complaint in the world, which is rare for a Monday. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lean Excellent. I'm gonna lean into that no complaint energy for the purposes of our of our conversation and you know I was as I was kind of mapping out where we were gonna go today I was ex- I was excited by the prospect one because I felt like we really had the opportunity to have a a pretty broad based but also important conversation as it pertains to where media, advertising, marketing, branding, all of these kind of collective and interrelated worlds are going. And and that was really exciting to me because I think the broader sometimes you can go, the more interesting it can be. Not always, sometimes we spin our wheels, but I feel confident that this will not be one of those spinning of the wheels opportunities. And where I wanted to start was with the idea or the notion of innovation, which is clearly a place where you spent a lot of time, is in your title. But you've also been critical of the notion of innovation, or at least the way in which it is often um, bandied about as an as an idea, as a theme, as a as a working concept. So I thought that would be a pretty interesting place to start. One to get your definition of innovation, good place to start, and then connect that to why you feel, to quote you, innovation is failing us.
1: And exactly how it fails us, yes. Yeah. You know, for well, I have a, my definition of innovation is technology, culture, and then simply good ideas. That, as I like to say, also allows me to have the bandwidth to say everything in that space, um, and I think very much in line with how you contexted our conversation today, I think we can parallel that into the innovation side of things, which is just that people, and it like to explore and have innovation, but where are we honing the craft? You know, what are we doing to make sure that we're having, we end up in a specific conversation? You know, I always say, um, that we do need innovation leaders, but of course, everyone's innovating. And I'm very open for other people to have definitions of what that is. But what's important to me in innovation and how I think it has failed us is simply the fact that oftentimes it is that, oh, well, we'll just fill space and time. Again, I'll, I'll parallel it to the, the way we talked about, like, well, if we if we keep the subject broad, where will we end up in our conversation? And not being weary of those specifics in that. And so when I say where it has failed us is that you know we don't have to be rogue punk rockers just trying to, you know, get five dollars for the show. We can be business people looking at growth strategies and have a a harnessed strategy to which we move that forward and move an innovation agenda forward in that
0: and there's there's a few things that kind of, Leapt to mind in in the context of that definition, but I want to land for a moment on you know what you described as you know sort of the rogue and the punk rocker aesthetic um, because I do feel that oftentimes there there is a lot of window dressing that happens in these spaces around branding innovation. And I'll, I'll throw in um, futurism and futurist and all different practices, but somewhat related in the sense that there's some through lines in the way we broadly think about those things. And I was in another conversation that will likely air before this one. So regular listeners will have heard this, but I was, I was talking to a woman, a futurist, and I was relaying to her how I was so tired of what I call like steampunk futurism. You know, where we are, if the person is has on certain effects, usually male, you know, somewhat steampunkish in their aesthetic and probably their cultural like leanings, then regardless of that person's thought process, we tend they tend to be hailed as some sort of like futurist visionary, right? And when I hear the notions of like rogue and and punk punk rock and you know all these kind of things that we lean in, which really are talking about cool, I'm I'm curious as to how much of the way we think about these things is effective, meaning we're putting on some sort of costume in order to do them, versus effective in that they have clearly definable, like meaning and learnings and pushing the business forward?
1: Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the thing that I would like to touch on is, you know, and I, I identify as an activist and an ad woman, and that comes from the fact that I started out as a punk. And for me, that is not a solitary existence. My punk community is the community, I mean, we all, hopefully we have all found communities to which have fostered us and and lifted us up and taught us things. Most everything I know about how I lead, I learned in activist collectives where we were banding together across multiple points of view and trying to move forward for a common cause. So for me, when I say that I identify, I know what you're speaking about too, That I, because I know them. And I, I know, I know, like, you know, the things I have working against me to this conversation are the fact that I'm anonymous and the fact that we are on a podcast, <laughs> you know, if, I, I totally get what you mean by that. But to me, I, I look towards people that are looking at it in terms of always into that community. So the reason that I got interested in the business of innovation wasn't for my own ego strokes it was because i believe that you know i'm a person that learns on the job i'm a person that has learned from my community and so as a mentor as an executive how do i provide job security for my teams how do i support the businesses across technology culture and simply good ideas in the long term if i'm only here for an ego the way i wear black clothing which is fantastic <laughs> but if i only focus on these things i'm not being true to my punk roots in my the way that i was brought up in that i was telling an anecdote which is going to go really left field for us but i was talking to people about how they found punk rock years and years ago and how we found that community and all three of there were four of us at the table and three of us had the same story which was it was the first place i ever walked into i was about 13 years old and nobody made fun of me I didn't care about the music. I didn't care about any of it. I just knew I found my people. And one person at the table said, oh, I like Doc Martens. There's room for everyone. But that's my experience.
0: There definitely is a, is a room for everybody. And, you know, I I hit that point kind of hard when I have this discussion with folks because really interested in the notions of co-option and how readily radical movements, whether those are social movements or movements of culture, are consumed by and changed by industry. And, And that industry is usually the industry that we're talking about, the branding, marketing, advertising, and all of its cohorts right so what begins in its nation stages as community and culture become branding and identity and what i want to talk through is the innovation cycle of that happening um cuz some would make the argument that that's the natural way in which these things happen and i'm curious how natural is it to what extent is it natural if it is and how do we, as people working within these structures, I don't know if I wanna say fight against the co-option, but we are aware of the co-option.
1: I mean, there's so many levels to what you're asking, Um, directly in the work, the experience in an organization, and then also as an individual leader, how you bring that, how you navigate that to the table. So. I'm going to go back to front on that and say that as a leader, um, you know when I how I consider innovation is not that I am the smartest person in the room, but that I have made a point to always be in a place of discovery, learning, and education, and to make sure that that is the environment that is being created. And those that, be it a startup, be it um, a new way of thinking. Be it a new technology that when they come to the table, that as I mean, again, I work for rather large brands. I most recently was at Hyundai for three years, so I don't. This is not a, a small fish table. So when I, if I'm calling on behalf of one of my clients and I'm bringing you to the table, I always say, "How am I benefiting the community?" From the first thing, you know, I I, I tell my mentees always take the meeting. But how am I benefiting that? So how am I supporting someone? You know, I did a event in Atlanta a few years ago, and I made sure that like we had local bands there, and I tell them how much I'm paying them. I never ask them what they want to be paid because I know they're going to low give me a low number, and I'm I'm notorious for this. So I'm, now it's going to be down on audio record, but I'm notorious for. Paying people more than they've ever experienced being paid for. And that doesn't mean that I I throw things out, but I have a different calibration of what I think. I, I I look at the budget sensibly. I'm human with that. So as a leader, and I and I look into these new spaces to co-opt into this space. I make sure that at every stage there's a benefit that's happening. I I think if you look at this in the term of cool innovations that are happening and I'm not an NFT fan, but NFTs are bringing forward the economic concept that artists will have in perpetuity royalties from their work, which for fine artists has not been on the table, that they have a say in their secondary marketplace and so on. I like the idea of that coming into commercial work. And things like that. That how are we really creating a sustainable change in that space? So, as a leader, I make sure that I'm thinking of it community wide, and making sure that I'm thinking of the individuals and what their goals are. You know, um, I w- one example of that would be I did a partnership with Stumptown Coffee years ago, where we did we launched it with CBS for we did a cold brew, which was a fun little concept of cool innovation for Stephen Colbert's launch. But I also knew that Stumptown wanted to be acquired. So we timed everything so that their needs were met at the same time that we co-opted their label and put Stephen Colbert on the cover. (laughs) I know I'm speaking in a very lighthearted example, but that is an example of hearing what everyone needs at the table from a circumstance, not just what I'm going to take use and profit from.
0: I think these are these examples are important ones. You know, I don't I don't know if I would say they're lighthearted in that respect because I don't I don't think this needs to be particularly heavy, you know, if, if we're looking for like a, a counterweight one to the other. But I think it does open up the opportunity to talk about power in how the power dynamics work within culture spaces, in the sense that you know, when I talk about co-option, I'm do not harbor any delusions, um, clearly from illusions because I want to make people clear that I'm saying delusions on purpose. Um, not harbor any, any either delusions or illusions that the narrative of the you know struggling artist and sort of the um, you know, commune based community that is building things. And those are brand narratives onto themselves, right? There's lots of people that are very wealthy and that can adopt those personas because their lifestyles, right. That they, that they choose to opt into. So when I talk about co-option, I'm not suggesting that in order for art to be legitimate or for the thing to be cool, it needs to come with, you know, implied struggle in order to accomplish it. I think that's a, a sort of naive way to to frame these things. But I do think there is a power dynamic that exists within the business of of advertising culture branding all of those things or or rather advertising branding marketing that is more parasitic in its relationship to culture particularly when that culture is created by african americans and other people of color there's a lot of take and very little give um or that give looks very much comfortable pyramid, right? Where there's a few at the top and then the bottom part of that pyramid is obviously big on the foundation that gets very little. So what I'm trying to like tease out is how knowing this to some degree, I think all of us know this, how do we create what you have done in your personal practice which is to build, bring yourself in a very human way as you highlighted and with examples to where um, vendors and culture makers and people involved in those processes are empowered. How do we turn that from an individual mandate of of you and, and others like you, right? And institutionalize it into just the way innovation works. Or is it possible to, to do, or maybe it's not possible to do that, right? So maybe I'm asking for something that can't be done, but that's why I ask questions, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, don't ask an innovator if something can't be done. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think that that's the the cornerstone of it. You know, um, again, just because I do focus this on the way I, I narrate through is just that it is this, the activism space that moves us forward. And to me that the cornerstone of that, and I put this in a lot of my writing is that, and it is the credo to which I run innovation is that there is always hope via disruption. And the best parallel I'll give to it and the example that I hold to is, you know, I do believe, so I'm an abolitionist in my activism. I believe in the abolition of the criminal justice system. And when I met these innovation dinners with all of these glorious people that we are touching on personas of across this conversation, without a doubt, several years ago, I remember being at one in Montreal and, you know, the second I say I'm a prison abolitionist, they go, oh. But what happens and, you know, not understanding that there are strategies, but going in and saying this has to stop now and starting at that point and ending this trial of negotiation of, well, can we, you know, put a a hair over here or a hair over here? You know, when um, when George Floyd was murdered. Uh, last year, I immediately put out a piece called six immediate actions that brands and uh, agencies can take. And they were incredibly minute. But to me, it's always like, what are you doing? How are we making proof? And these were not black box posts on Instagram, but like signing up to Tonal to make sure that your stock photography for the creative is always a diverse group and also supporting that business, you know, making sure that there's just so many, there's just so many businesses that we can be supporting that we're not thinking of, but in this process. So to the point of this is to me, to get to that place, instead of these figureheads, you know, I think it's important to always acknowledge that the chief diversity and inclusion officer is the lowest paid C-suite position. And it is oftentimes the only person of color in the C-suite. Oftentimes that is changing. But for me, in the approach that is to me, is that you have to sort of abolish the system of it. And I am not afraid of moving into it. You know, I I wrote a piece called Inclusion Isn't Free. And I point blank said, you will lose your job. You will need to step aside so that we can see progress happen. So that can mean, oh, well, my creative buddy that I I always feel good with another white guy with a baseball cap that I can lean on on set, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. You're going to have to learn that there and and learn what other people's points of view are because there's been, you know, it's even been if you make it into this ecosystem that there's some sort of compromise that you have to fall in line with a certain behavior. You know, this is not the case, like all of that. So to me, I approach this innovation point of view into the work with we can abolish this system. There are complete ways in which we, and you're seeing this with, Some exciting agencies, you know. um, And I mean that with, like, you know, particularly like Mischief, um, which is really coming about it as like, we don't need to be playing these old games. We can move forward with new games um, in how we're moving forward. A lot of brands are taking a lot of things in house and restructuring at that point. You know, there's a lot of organizational changes. Now, some of those will just be shiny object changes. But I correlate oftentimes the work of inclusion to the work of innovation, not because I parallel it in any way for the importance of it, because I'd rather every day to have a more inclusive workplace that has multiple points of view than a cool AI technology. I understand priorities. But if the bottom line is these are areas of budgets that get cut immediately, and then we go back to the old way. So if I'm pursuing new ways of economics in terms of innovation and I'm taking care of my people, as I mentioned, which is an important part of how I address innovation as a business, I need to be broadening that and making sure that we're not siloing these areas to say, oh, well, we need to be more multicultural. So we'll go all the way left over here to an agency we can work with once. It's about long term pipeline setups.
0: In and you know i think that leads perfectly into us continuing to kind of parse the language of innovation you know because when you bring in you know notions of abolition for example i think that's an important example of the power of language because when when we use a word like abolition it it didn't it speaks to a particular way of thinking and moving in the world vis-a-vis a particular system. So prison reform, for example, doesn't quite capture that, right? Because it 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 by its nature, it's not starting with the idea that prisons are wrong. It's saying like, oh, we can just reform them in some way, right? Like this isn't working. We recognize that there are parts of this that aren't good. But that also implies that there are parts of it that are good. And so we're going to reform it to come up with the way where it works better. We can all kind of agree and sleep better at night and all the rest of it. And a lot of these practices around innovation are, in my mind only, so there's an editorial of one, Um, lean very similar to reform versus abolition in the sense that Silicon Valley is a very popular co-opter of culture. And one of the things I think they've co-opted as culture is the use of innovation. So one, we think of innovation primarily as a technological thing and the technology that we measure is narrow in its scope, right? So it's mobile devices and laptops and different OS systems and all the rest, right? Painting with a broad brush, not saying everyone thinks this, but publicly broadly, right? Wired Magazine is a perfect example of that, right? Their notion of innovation and technology, I think fits in a fairly narrow parameter, right? Relative to those terms. So consider this my Wired example of what those words mean. Where I'm going with this is to say that so many things touted as innovations are not really that innovative, right? So Uber would say they're innovative, but I'm like, it's still cars, right? It still might not be my car, but the process of what you're doing, which is moving me from one place to another through a carbon-based vehicle that runs on overcrowded streets wouldn't rank as innovation to me. Um, So aside from me picking on Uber, though they do suck, my, my point to that is is how do we measure or make a distinguish between something that is iterative of an existing system, so reform, versus something that is innovative, which I feel is a break from the way in which we're doing something to something else. Does that make sense?
1: It does. I wonder though, if it would be hard to spy it out um, when it happens. Because I I think of my own work just because if you're working in an institution of any kind or a corporation and you're putting forward even a new point of view, it will be put into the new environment. So I think of a lot of the digital retail solutions that I embedded into the purchase process for Hyundai. And to the outside person, there is no understanding of the game change of it. you know it's just oh it's another way in which I can purchase a car. it looks the same while it actually you know saves money here, helps the environment you know it has all of these different elements that are um, change the infrastructure of the way in which we thought that we could sell you know there's a incredible legal, Chaos, the chaos of being able to sell a car in the united states is quite thick and breaking that system is a part of that but that like the buyer will never see that the consumer is not going to have be that disrupted and that's sort of one of the gifts of innovation is that you don't disrupt them so much and i'll this is so funny a parallel to do because again i i think some of these one of these issues is so important to me and i i do care that cars are sold but Not as much as other things, Um, but I think of it, you know, in terms of as we keep sort of moving forward, and we see, you know, so this is how cars are purchased and things like that. How about the idea of oh, I can still feel safe? I live in an area of Los Angeles, for instance, that has a local, like a local security force that is not cops, is an example. And I feel perfectly safe without people with guns. Now that is a huge change in that system. That's an outsourced private security, but it's it's a new system, that's innovation to me. You, you took it away, you broke the system, but it doesn't change my personal experience of living. Like I, I'm like, oh, I, I actually feel better <laughs> to go to you know someone in a polo shirt that's just riding a bicycle around than anything else, but to not digress too far. I just think that is the goal is that the the general population doesn't feel the impact of the revolution, because by the time it has happened, it becomes so natural. And if you'd like to go into the experience that I've had and watching that happen with queer culture and, and the change of, and the sort of multitude of genders that are now accepted and that watching that happen in my lifetime, I never thought I would see. And that was something that 20 years ago we were out fighting for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I do want to get to that. Um, so let's stick a pin there. Um, because if I don't get to the points raised in your last answer, I will forget them. (laughs) And so, um, and, there is incredible progress, right? So, I don't want to pretend that there isn't, even as I push back against some of some of these ideas, because it's just my nature. Um, so I, I'm probably like, I like to think I'm poo, but I might be a little bit more er in that in that respect. But you know, I think you raised a lot of good points, but I want to jump on one word that kind of jumped out to me which is the distinguishing between see and feel where Mm -hmm. some things you're right we might not see them or they might not appear to be um you know breaks the breaks i described but i think we feel the break even if we can't bring words to it and my example of that will be a technological example, um, which is an iPod, right? iPod wasn't the first multi MP3, you know, holder of music, right? Um, Zune, I think, hit the market way <laughs> way before the iPod did. Um, and And there were other catalogers of MP3 music before iTunes, you know, um I used one and it was an awful experience, but iTunes was kind of buggy as well, even before it started. But none I, I bring that up to say that the the change in the culture because of how those forces came together, both player and service, I think is was something that I felt despite the fact that I might not have been able to put words to it. And mm-hmm. I think the longer tail of that is the expectation that we carry huge amounts of our cultural life with us wherever we go. So beyond the music element of, oh, I have an iPod and it can hold at the time, you know, 500 songs or whatever was the tremendous number that eventually grew to like thousands, right? Like you could walk around with, depending on the length of songs, you know, 25,000 songs or whatever, right? So we kind of felt that and it birthed all these other things, right? This, this notion of our identities, right? As connected to this white, mostly disc, right? That held all this stuff. So um, I bring that up to question, how do we capture the intangibility of the feeling that is embedded within innovation and culture?
1: Hmm. I think about those times and, you know, for me, it's, it's the long tail of that product roadmap um, that is the excitement. Because, I mean, I've lived through the advent of digital video. So... Um, it makes me appear much older than I, am. I actually am, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I sat in a room at MTV and we said, we think we're going to put video on MTV.com. And everyone went, what does that look like? You know? Um, and in concept, you know, that's how I ended up in innovation is someone said to me, you do realize that by like being on the front lines of that digital video and so on, you're an innovator. And I was like, Really? Because I just am always looking at you know new opportunities to explore creativity and so on. You know, I I didn't step into this you know to wear black, be anonymous, and have you know <laughs> the, the innovator title. Um, it sort of fell onto me in that space. And you know, when I I think about the evolution of it, and I to me, it's that. It's when we can step away and someone else gets better at it than us. That I, to me, I believe that it's being, that innovation is being felt, that people are aware that new things are happening. You know, when I watch YouTube uh, influencers and watch what they're doing, and there are people that do not speak that language. You know, there's people that do not speak TikTok. They do not understand what is happening there. I think that's a good thing. I shouldn't understand every TikTok dance and every purpose, but the fact that people are creatively inventing in that. And I think that's what, you know, the same as when we, we moved into digital, you know, with Napster, when it all, you know, everyone freaked out. And I think we need to be careful always that things don't end up that way because though touring came to help the music industry, that was a really difficult time for artists. And I'm not, being sad for Sony Music or, or something like that in the story. But that was a really difficult organizational shift of how a business is going to run. And not until recently have we seen the artists take a step forward in that. You know, when we look at like what's happening, you know, in terms of social music on social platforms and so on, I think a really good example of is when we went into lockdown, there were multiple, everyone was live streaming concerts. And you had your options of like a a live by live, which is a bit more of a live nation sort of infrastructure where brands are supporting it and you buy a ticket and you watch a concert. And then on the other side, you have a platform like the Madden brothers and Kyle is the chief uh, product officer over there. They created Veeps and Veeps really allowed us to see how much people wanted to pay for artists and artists set up their own account there and they decided Oh, I want to do a concert every week and 40 people can come. And their fans sort of dictated the pricing of it. You were able, the money, you know, I can't um, publicly speak how much people made the first few months of Veeps, but it's in the millions you know, at the beginning of COVID, a time that, you know, the tours stopped, everything happened, and they came in with a community solution in that space. And to me, that's an immediate feeling of, oh, we're going to be all right, because technology is helping us here. Um, while there were great overlays that could happen in terms of live streaming technology, to me, the innovation wasn't that you could live stream a concert. It was how are we looking at? are we shifting the economy? Are we shifting who has the power in this scenario? And how can and to me, that can be felt immediately into those fan communities, which again is then their creativity, the artist' creativity because of the technology provided.
0: And I, I mean, I think raising those points about artists is is so important. And it actually, allows me in a very weird way to backtrack to the security question um, or the point you raised about um, having like the private security and feeling more secure about less people around with guns and, and that kind of stuff. Like I'm going to make a connection that I wouldn't have expected to make, but you helped me get there. So thank you. Um, (laughs) Which is, when you when you talk about the the fan communities and you mention these platforms that were able to come to life in in the very early stages of the pandemic and like i say almost i think every week on the show or each each time i record like you know we're all still dealing with covid more or less depending on where you live <laughs> you know um the earth is still dealing with it to a great degree and then speaking about the United States, depending on where you are within the United States is how much this affects you in in a day-to-day basis or doesn't at all and and all those kind of things. So there is no uniformity in, in COVID experiences and pandemic experiences, but for the purposes of this conversation, I will try to flatten how I'm talking about those things. And as I heard that story and those examples, I wonder, and I I guess I'm posing this to you and anyone who's listening as well as myself, like one of the biggest letdowns I've had is in our collective public ability to do anything of meaning during this time. So I wonder um, if what would have felt innovative to me would have been a a public responsibility to view arts and culture in the same way we viewed a ton of other businesses like airlines and cruise ships that got tremendous amounts of bailouts right from the beginning or support, right? Since bailouts is one of those words that triggers people, right? So, um, and to the same point about the security, it's a it becomes a private public conversation the police are public so therefore supposed to have a certain level of good and then if we want something other we got to pay for it ourselves or find another way or move to a community and so long-winded but i'm getting there how do we change our imagination to one that envisions the public responsibility to be the good that you describe that exist in private settings, right? Mm. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to get at there?
1: It does. I will clarify that my what I did term it private security, but it is actually public taxpayers. It's just okay, they good. have different security. So awesome. uh, it's not like um I've got like you know I, I don't like live in Beverly Hills where it's like the Beverly Hills protection officers <laughs> that doing. Are that. there such a thing? It, no, yeah, I mean, you can have, if you have a gated community, I just, that's not my scenario. Okay. What, like, literally, it's just, it's, it's part of the efforts that, um, particularly Black Lives Matter LA and Dignity and Power have been fighting for a lot in Los Angeles. And so it is just a, as what I would refer to as a demilitarized, awesome community support network. Um, that's my words. You could take it, <laughs> however. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, It comes to, I'm going to actually tailor it right into advertising and brand marketing, which is that I think we're at a really big moment for this. And you're seeing it happen where as people are coming out, if that's happening where you are, because it is completely privilege based here. So if you are in that circumstance and you're in the coming out phase, and I put that in quotes, um, that you put doing that, it. There's these advertisements now, and I've been speaking and consulting around this that people have come out like, come back to the gym, it's fifty percent off. Like, don't worry about, like, oh, we've got you, like everything comes at a discount. That's not the tenor of the moment to me. I wanna know that you brought your workers back and you gave them health care. I wanna know that you're paying, you didn't need the, you know, the fight for 15 didn't need to happen. You were already there. Like you've already been paying your teams and that kind of thing. I want to know that I'm helping my community. I don't hear from many people that there is an issue with like, you know, tipping someone right now. Like people are well aware that we are sort of, we've had this moment to be all in this together. I'm not ignoring the privilege that is all across this. And we'll only, we'll only see it get worse as it continues to move through, but to me, it's that moment as a marketer of saying, why do I keep thinking that I have to make things discounts and not community-led moments of support? Which if your advertisement tells me, and this is what I advocate to my clients, that it tells me that I'm supporting my community, you know, I'm think about it as a small business Saturday from Amex or just things that are community-based that I know, oh, if I'm paying you, it's going to my community that to me is the narrative that which is somewhat innovative narrative to be putting forward at this time because we don't i don't need i mean i'm not saying we're all like there's huge job loss especially for women and women of color in america like that's that's your core. you know so that's happening but how are we helping new businesses? How are we supporting communities and moving it forward? So some people have netted out very well through this pandemic. And there is a sense that we need to be supporting in a new economy way. And that doesn't come with rebate coupons to get people back in the gym.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't I couldn't agree with that more. You know, I, I wanna as promised give you an opportunity to you know, share that long tail, um, experience as it pertains to, um, queer communities, queer culture. I think, you know, as, as a black guy there, I always joke that, you know, I never thought that I would, I've seen like a Barack Obama, right? Like that was just something I just assumed would never happen. And then it did happen, right. For, um, and then we, we deal with, like, everything since then, right? But this was just a common thing. Like, I remember if, if anybody's ever seen, like, Kings of Comedy, concert film with some greats in in comedy and, and also Steve Harvey. So a knock to Steve Harvey is not that funny. Um, <laughs> good in what he does, but not compared to, <laughs> like, you know, Bernie Mac and the heavy hitters that were on, on that tour. But, you know, Steve is cool, I'm giving – giving Steve a hard time at this moment but in all seriousness you know there was I think it was Dale Hughley um who had like a or it might have been um C- Cedric the Entertainer who was make had this whole bit about never seeing a black president you know like it was just like yeah we're never gonna see this and I think Kings of Comedy came out like 99, 98, you know, and then like 10 years <laughs> later, there we were. Right. So seismic shifts can, can happen even when in our jokes, which are mirroring real social pain that would have that notion, things can change. Right. So I want to give you an opportunity. You talked, you touched on it briefly, and I promise I'll get back to it within two questions. And I think I did um, that I don't want to use words like metamorphosis. We're still going through so much within these communities. So I don't want to give the notion Mm -hmm. that like, oh, problem solved. But things have changed and continue to change, even as there is incredible work still left to be done. So I want to give you a chance to speak to that as it pertains to the things we've been talking about in innovation. And and as you cited, there's been an acceptance that you never would have dreamed would have been possible at some point earlier point in your in your life you know so i want to hear a little bit more about that
1: yeah i mean i think it it's a great example of you know being an activist for a long time and hope via disruption as i've mentioned is sort of my my credo in moving forward but you know if you go back to you know 98 99 i was in a direct action activist group in new york city and we, when Amadou Diallo was murdered by the New York Police Department, we, amongst other activist groups, because again, this is a community network. This isn't about, you know, who's the biggest steampunk in the room. That doesn't work. And you know, our activist group was called Fed Up Queers. It was a sides. It was a sister to ACT UP. And you know, I'm not going to get into the other act, the other groups that we partnered with um, for the actions around Diallo and to fight the NYPD, but we were told to leave the queer part aside. And to be fair, we weren't there to, that wasn't for the queer agenda. We were there in allyship. We were there to provide secure, the tools that we knew as direct action activists, we brought to the table and were there to support. Uh, it, it's not about whose agenda is on the table. That was a You know, that was the first time I hit the streets for the, um, because of my age, it was the first time I hit the streets um, for the cops murdering a black man in America and a black person in America. And I will tell you, I don't want to even count how many since. Um, So I just want to just have a pause for that. like, And that's my own life experience. And other people have much longer. And some have just started. And I just... I believe in these changes, and that's why I think it's important to share these stories. But, you know, we were told not to bring up the queer thing. And again, no problems with that. So when I go to the protests after George Floyd's murder, and I see Black trans lives matter, and I see a line of all these things that matter... It brings a tear to my eye. When I have a Java application or I talk, set up a, something with HR and they say, oh, non-binary, queer, what? I mean, when I used to identify, I speak in they and thems, um to identify people universally um, because that's just the safe landing. I don't need to identify you in a, in a binary gender system um and people would always be like you know very britishly like oh you're it's plural though stop speaking in plurals one person is and i was like i have a limited number of words to which i can use and i'd rather be taken up by the grammar police for they them and now i see uh, on zoom calls people with their identifiers and that they're stepping into it and frankly i see you know i talk about this and that in terms of media marketing if you have a, because gen- this younger generation inspires me, as I hope all younger generations do for the, for, you know, for all, always. But when I see them, I see them destroying the system of media marketing because they will not be a target. They are not going to be male, 35, living in the city, median income, 125K. That That is being destroyed. And that comes in a number of different ways that they've started to take a little bit from the Valley of, I need to invest here and so on. And so to me, it's watching, um, queer come into society. You know, when I hear a president say, and our queer brothers and sisters and them, or however the language, I never thought I would see that, you know, my, you know, I used to always say, they'd be like, Oh, this is who you are. I was like, no, no, no. And you know, there was a time of worry in that too. When gay pride became a commodity, it was being totally co-opted by absolute and bud light and all of this. So, so we had this moment of, Oh no, we're being lost. And to see it come back to the, you know, to the kids and just in identity and in the seamlessness and no compromises is a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, um, that journey that you shared from Diallo to George Floyd and then the lived experience of seeing communities become more open to one another and standing in solidarity is critical. That's the kind of innovation that I could definitely get my, get my head around. You know, I, I'm keeping an eye on where we are in terms of time because we have like two more segments of the show. But I want to get to one final mm-hmm. question. Kind of a big one, but we can kind of abbreviate it if possible because you wrote a piece about cancel culture and oh yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot and the notions behind it. And years ago when I first launched Influencer Conference, which is an event I no longer do, but I did in 2010 through like 2014-2015. But one of the first um like panels that we'd ever did was was called um curing the crisis of fear. And it was we had, you know, all, at the time we didn't really know what we were doing, so we had all these like pretty basic marketing brandy type of things, but this was like the only one that was slightly different. I had a bunch of entrepreneurs, a bunch of makers, like Eddie Wong was on that panel and this was like before the TV shows and all that kind of stuff. It's like just doing Bauhaus and all that kind of stuff. So true people living in the culture and we try to really parse So much of branding and marketing seemed to run on fear rather than on the things that culture seemed to run on, which was like, yeah, we're just going to do something, you know, and make it Mm -hmm. amazing. And in your piece around cancel culture, you talked about brands and organizations, you know, kind of being afraid of doing the wrong thing and getting canceled and leaving aside my notions of cancel culture and whether or not it is relevant or exist in the frame in which that essay was written, how do we move past this fear that still seems to be permeating throughout the industry? So the same conversations I try to surface in 2010 still seem to be here manifesting in a different way. Right. So I'm curious your notions of fear, how it connects to the industry and how do we navigate through it, move past it, if at all possible. And then I'll get into the final two segments of the show and we will be done.
1: Um, Well, I have heard your thoughts on cancel culture because I listened to those episodes. (laughs) So I'm familiar with who I'm speaking to at the moment (laughs) Um, on this subject. But, you know, in the piece, I talk that brands have to be vulnerable um, and leaders have to be vulnerable. And that um, goes to the activist principle that I'm always learning and I am always open to be educated. And you can be that is a great um, element of being a leader is that we're listening. You know, and I don't mean that in the trite way that people are like, I'm listening right now. I, I don't know if you can even hear the way I'm, I'm fully saying it, but if you know, you know what I'm saying <laughs> um, in that space. Um, so I think it really, it comes down to, you know, to me, cancel culture, my biggest concern around it is I've lived through the political correctness. So, oh, I don't want to, am I being too PC right now? You know, and it becomes a joke. When actually, it's a serious conversation, that if you think that you have an opinion or a point of view and putting that forward, and I'm not encouraging certain points of view, but that you will be that that's it. It's childish. It's childish to think like that. We should always be growing. We should always be learning. And if I say something wrong, um if I need to be schooled in some way, I want friends. Consumers and my peers to tell me, you know, I want to step into a better self and I want to see brands step into a better self. And so that fear of cancel culture, if it is paralyzing, you will not move forward. I think there's been great examples, and I I spoke about um, Peloton um, in terms of brands being vulnerable. You know, they had a huge supply chain issue, they had a huge delivery issue. They are what they are. You know, they had the commercial that bombed, all of these things. But if you look at the fabric of what that company is doing, and if you look at the people that they are supporting and who are their employees, they show up and they learn. They are transparent in their journeys through it. Oh, you know, we shaved two weeks off the delivery because we were able to do this, this, and this. Um, And I think it's creating those spaces for people to have those changes and to continue to grow and allow that opportunity to move forward.
0: Yeah, we got to be more comfortable being vulnerable, right? I definitely agree with that. That is a strength. If we can do that, then we're always, like you said, we're always learning. We're always getting better. We're not afraid of the quote unquote consequences such as they are of not doing the perfect thing as if any of us ever do the perfect thing. Um, so Because I know I have not even come close to that ever. So I take great solace in that. So that's great. I want to get us to the final two segments of the show. The first being off the dome, rapid fire questions, literally the first thing that comes to your mind, stream of consciousness kind of thing. Fingers crossed for both of us, and I only have I only have three, and I think they're they're pretty seamless. Okay. So, if you can take a pill and instantly acquire any one skill, what would that skill be? Language. Which one?
1: More like lang- Probably French.
0: Okay, I know this. Is- I'd
1: like. I I have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Why French? French. Just curious.
1: Um. Because I. Well, the answer is, is that I'm really excited about what's happening in Africa right now. Mm -hmm. And there's, um, I think I'm more interested in areas that French is a part of language more. It would be French or Spanish. And it's not that I don't think both are relevant, but if I had to pick, I'd go French.
0: Okay. If you could remove any one catchphrase or word from the lexicon of the industry, what would that word or phrase be?
1: Oh, right.
0: Right as in words or right as in right versus wrong?
1: Right right as versus wrong or that or I know, which is two words, but I, I, these are things that I don't need in my life. Okay. I don't need you to tell me that, that you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't need to hear that that's right and that's wrong. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. And the last one is a fill in the blank. When I think of community, I think of blank.
1: Heart, heartbeats.
0: I like it. No commentary needed. It speaks for itself. Mm-mm. And yeah. now we're getting to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share something with our listeners, an a intellectual morsel, something that we feel they should be on top of and be aware of. And I didn't actually write my drop down, so I have to reach over and grab it so I could read the title. But I was like, yeah, I kind of gave it away that it's a book. But um, nonetheless, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a a sneak peek into what the drop was going to be. But I can go first, you can go first, whichever works best for you. Go for it. Okay, so this is me grabbing the book. The moment that I'm doing this, will will cut out this will be edited out. Obviously, this will be more seamless, but everyone will know that I was actually <laughs> reaching down into this huge pile of books on the side of me and pulling out the one that I had on the top for this week's drop. And now this is gonna sound kind of wonky, but it it actually isn't. And it came to me through an essay that I that I was reading like a few months ago, and I was like, oh, my God, Like this is actually sounds pretty cool in a way it was referenced in the essay. So I went out and went to Thrift Books, one of my favorite places to get books, because um, I'm not fussy about how clean books are. I'm fine with a little bit of dog earring mm-hmm. and bookmarking and that kind of stuff gives it a little character. And um, Thrift yes. Books is an awesome way to do that. I have no affiliation with Thrift Books, so this is not a commercial, but they are awesome. So anyway, <laughs> the book is called Computer Power and Human Reason. From Judgment to Calculation, and it's by Joseph um, Weizenbaum. And again, kind of a heavy title, sounds like a heavy read, but it's actually, I think, really useful if you're trying to understand so much of our techno-utopian language and the branding that goes with Silicon Valley and just computers and technology, just in general. It walks through how we've tied those elements to the way we think. And this book predates all that. So it's kind of like a predecessor mm-hmm. to what's happening now. But if you read it, you'll see kernels and elements and great book. So that's my drop.
1: I love it. Um, my drop uh, is K Tempest On um, Connection, which is also a book. Um, it came out during COVID. Uh, K Tempest is, um, is a poet that has won a lot of, a British poet that has won a lot of awards, also a rapper, has a few albums out. Um, And they, this book is about sort of not being on tour. Um, And if you've ever seen K. Tempest, they ask you to put your phone away during the show and really vibe on this connection. And it's a wonderfully short, beautiful book, uh, their first nonfiction work that just talks about how we connect with each other, you know, on their last album, they had a great um, one of the singles from it was about connecting with people on trains and, and just, you know, as I love all you, all of your faces. And it, this was pre COVID. It was just this beautiful love letter to cities and on connection talks about coming back to that and what and a romance to connectivity with people in the creative process and how that is a functional requirement um as Kay puts it forward and what that looks like. And I found it incredibly inspiring during this time. Um, and also comforting. I think there's we're in that phase of people seeking a normal and this was just an appreciation of a question, but also knowing things that are craved.
0: Oh that sounds perfect. Love love stories to cities is exactly where my head is, all, is always always kind of willing to rest. So that sounds like a great drop up. When you know, I would say this when when you know, guests come on and they recommend stuff oftentimes I'm digging it up myself and so these are as much for me as they are for our listeners and um that sounds like a great one. So you know, on that note I got us out a little later than I said, but nonetheless we're here. And um, I really want to thank you for being on the show, Mordecai. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate you taking a ride with me and uh, scheduling this and um, look forward to future conversations. I have a funny feeling that this won't be our last one.
1: Me too. It's been great.
0: Thank you so much for being on The Deep Dive. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.